many of the companies that I've worked with, the ones that have been really able to embrace this most fully, a lot of them are closely held family-owned businesses because they don't have to worry about short-term results. They don't have to fall prey to quarterly capitalism. They can say, we're trying to build something so that there's something for the next generation to inherit. But it really is a very different mindset to say, we're focused on the long-term well-being of our customers and we trust that everything else will fall into place and we're willing to be patient about the financial payoff to that value that we're creating and building. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. In the fall of 2021, we started exploring this idea of membership. What does a Levels membership mean? Why would someone want to be a member of Levels? Well, as we build out this business, we don't want to be incentivized on selling people any products. Might sound counterintuitive, and why would we do that? What's a company that has an analogous business model? Well, let's look at Costco. Let's look at Amazon Prime. These are companies where membership is the value. They provide value to people through their membership. Costco is notorious for not trying to make money on all these products that they sell. They're incentivized to provide great products to people at the lowest possible price. Well, when you think about health, you don't really want a health-related company to be making money off of your health. Health is not something that should be a privilege. It should not be inaccessible. It should be something that companies are always working in the best interest of people who use their products. Well, at Levels, if we have what's called a membership, then we're incentivized not to sell people on product, but to provide them with value through the membership that they choose to opt into. That's the heuristic that we're using as we build out membership at Levels. So Maz Brumand, one of the newest team members, had a business at Levels, and Robbie Bagster, author of The Membership Economy, the two of them sat down and they discussed this idea of membership. What is it? Why is it important? And how can we think about it moving forward? It was a great conversation. And here's where they kick things off. Well, Robbie, I'm really excited to have this conversation. And, you know, I've read your two books and there is a million questions, but also they really resonated Good. for me. And I know, I know the team's actually read one of your books and we have this thing called a book club, which everybody reads the book and then discusses it over an hour of the takeaways. And, uh, you know, we've done that with your book, which uh, was really fascinating. So anyways, excited to get started. Yeah, I'd love to hear what they took away and what made sense and what wasn't relevant sometime. I, I would be fascinated to learn. Yeah, you know, it's funny because we approached it from what do we want to achieve and arrived at membership. Versus, you know, listening to your books, a lot of people are like, I want to do membership, so how do I do yeah. it? And the way we arrived there was there were two components that were really important to us. One is to make sure we actually create value for our customers, especially in health, this is important. And then the second one is align that with our incentive. So both the customer's incentive and levels incentive are aligned. And when you actually look at that, it's exactly what you set out in your book. And I think, you know, the forever transaction just summed it up really well in two words because you have to create value and you have to be aligned to create that value, create that forever relationship. So it was really interesting to read your book and then look at the way we've been thinking about it and just really clicked and the team really okay. enjoyed that. Yeah. Anything that's focused on health lends itself really well to forever because most of us, when we think about why we're making healthy choices, it's usually with the long-term, not always, but usually with the long-term in mind. So I find it really exciting to think about what you're doing and what's possible in terms of really changing people's long-term term behavior and continuing to extend the value that you provide them, you know, where you are now being a starting point. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, in health, especially, we have to be really careful about make sure we are creating value. Well, there are three things that we really think about deeply, which is um, we want to make sure we don't create dark patterns, which is effectively 
creating user experiences that doesn't create value or tricks users or creating things demand that doesn't drive value. You can look at a couple of business models that are out there, uh, for example, that's you know the opposite of what you describe in your books, which is, for example, upselling people on stuff. Like you can think of auto repair as being that or businesses that actually benefit with people not engaging or getting value from the products like gym memberships. They, you know, their worst customers are probably people that use the gym all the time or, you know, businesses that actually create demand that doesn't add value for people. I think some of the pharmaceuticals have, you know, in the news have been in that way. So, you know, we've been thinking a lot about how do we actually create a business that's creating value for people. So we give more than we take, whether it's, you know, through pricing strategy or other values and also making sure that we're incentivized in a way that the more people use our products and engage with us, uh, the more value they get. And, you know, there's a number of things that I would love to dig into and ask questions and uh, would love to get your thoughts. One of the things that you discussed, I think, in your first book was this idea of belonging and self-esteem. I would love to hear how, you know, the companies that you've interacted with, like who's done it well and, uh, you know, what are some of the most successful strategies that they've used to create the sense of belonging and self-esteem? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, if you, if you start at the beginning, you want to know who you're serving. And so many organizations, you know, say we can serve everybody, but really knowing who is it that you're going to serve first and that you can really serve well and who will recognize the value and the feeling of being recognized, I think, is really important in an organization that has a membership mindset where they say, this organization, they know me. And going off a little bit on a tangent, you know, there's a lot of talk about privacy, right? And the challenge is if you don't want, you know, the, the downside of people not knowing your business is they don't know your business. They're not able to help you. They don't know who you are. They don't recognize you. They can't be personal with you. So in a membership organization, recognizing the person, First, by recognizing maybe the category or understanding where they're coming from, and also being able to see around corners, which I think is a really powerful thing that great membership organizations do. So for example, let's say I join, um, I have a baby, right? And I join a, a parenting group. For me, each new experience may be a big surprise. You know, now my, at the beginning, my baby was sleeping through the night and now all of a sudden, you know, three months in, she's not. And now she's eating these foods and now she's not eating those foods. Well, to me, all of that is a big surprise. But to somebody who understands the journey of a new parent, they can guess pretty well that, you know, this is what's going to happen at three months and six months and one year. And being able to help a person prepare for that journey that feels new to them, but is not really new to you as an organization, I think it really does wonders for driving trust, for driving recognition, and for giving that person a sense of confidence and well-being because they feel like they're in the right place. They're doing the, the responsible thing, the good thing, the, the careful thing. And they've really reduced risk and increased the likelihood of achieving their most important long-term goals. Do you think there is a trade-off between privacy and that getting to know, or do you know businesses that actually manage to do both really well? Keep the privacy at top of mind, but also know the customer and be able to deliver the value that they need at the time that they need. Yeah. Well, there's there's a couple of, of elements to that. So one of them is, I don't need to know who you are and what your child's name is in order to have a pretty good inkling of what's going to happen at three months and six months and nine months. So I can actually protect your privacy, but at the same time, with, with a very minimal amount of data, be able to provide you almost what might feel like psychic insights and support. So that's one piece. And I think the bigger idea is that when you ask for data, it's really important. And this gets to your, you know, your dark matter point too. If you're taking the data, there has to be a reason for it. That reason has to be clear to you as an organization and it has to be clear to the member as well. So if I give you a key to my home, because I know that you're going to check on things while I'm gone, it's worth giving you access to everything I have. And I'm taking a risk, but there's a good payoff. And I also understand why you need a key if you're going to clean my floors, right? You yeah. can't do it without having access. So I think that's the second piece. So one is you often don't need as much personal data, disaggregated data, 
as you might think in order to provide what feels like a very personalized and relevant experience. And the other one is when you do need more data, I think it's important from a cultural perspective to be really clear on why we need it and what we're going to do that provides benefit for the customer. Yeah, sounds like on your second point that trust is really the core component, really making people believe and see that giving you things that ordinarily may be uncomfortable is because of who you are and what your principles are is okay. And you will treat that with complete discretion and use it in the way that you told them to use it. Yeah, I believe that for a membership relationship with a customer, any kind of membership, you know, whether it's through subscription pricing or not, at the core, it's about trust. Because what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking off, you know, if, if I'm the customer, I'm taking off my customer hat, my consumer hat. I'm putting on a member hat and I'm not looking for alternatives. And I'm trusting that you're going to solve my problem, my ongoing problem, or help me achieve my ongoing goal, whether or not I am actively evaluating you. So if I join a gym, I assume that over time, you're going to swap in and out different equipment. You're going to change how you talk about nutrition. You're going to change, you know, you're going to redo the fitness rooms. You're going to update the showers because the promise to me is that you're going to help me make it as efficient or comfortable or enjoyable as possible to achieve my health goals in this gym. So the challenge, though, is that when I trust you, when I take off my consumer hat and I stop looking for alternatives, I think the temptation on the side of the organization is to say, Robbie's not even paying attention. I don't even think she looks at the bill. You know, yeah. we, can, we can throw in some extra add-on costs. We can slowly remove some of the benefits. We can slow down the frequency with which we upgrade things because she's not paying attention. And she has no idea that there's a gym next door that's 10 times nicer because she's not shopping. And I think a lot of subscription-based businesses do that. They sort of fall in the trap of saying, my customer's not very smart. They won't even notice. Instead of saying, my customer has given me the greatest gift, which is trust. And I need to live up to that. Yeah, I love that. You know, one of the concepts we use internally is this idea of painting the back of the fence. It's, you know, paying attention to deals, even if people don't see it. You have to really earn that trust, uh, which is, I love what you just said. Do you think that as this sharing economy and the membership economy proliferates, that privacy will become more and more important for people? It seems like the first generation of the sharing economy or membership was very much privacy was taking a backseat. And it seems like as people are moving more into this world, that's becoming also more important where both are important. You don't have to choose between one or the other, but really combining those two into a compelling offering is becoming more important, especially I would imagine in health, that would be even more important. Yeah, for sure in health. It's interesting, you know, I've been in this world of subscriptions and membership for a really long time. So more than 20 years that I've been focused on it. And, you know, I remember, for example, in the very early years that I was working with Netflix, something that was interesting was they had covered the United States, had been able to achieve, you know, full penetration across the United States, you know, able to send their three DVDs out at a time with overnight turnaround across the country, and they were looking to expand. And one of the biggest challenges was that most of the other countries that they wanted to go to weren't ready to trust a company with their credit card, with their payment model. And so they actually, they went to the UK and they turned around and came back and said, you know what, they're not ready. We can't do this. And I remember early conversations about, you know, how payments work in India versus how payments work in France and all of the different nuances around, it was really around trust, not around technological capability. So the trust issue was there. They were like, I want my privacy. I don't want somebody to know my credit card number, but they could just go out and spend it on anything. And then what I saw was this kind of rapid, like you go from that, why would I give you my credit card to, sure, here's a key to my house. Here's my ID. Here's my, you know, all the information about my family. Is there anything else that I can give you? Do you want my health information? And all of that to just get access to whatever, to get access to a movie or to buy a sweater online. And I think only a few people were really questioning it. It was sort of like we had the suspended, collective suspended disbelief. Like yeah. they must need it. I'll just give them the information and I'm sure it's safe. And I think we've kind of come all the way to the other end of the pendulum now where people are saying, wait, why do you need that? Why do you even yeah. need my credit card number? Why do you even need to know my name? I don't want to tell you anything. So, you know, I think, I think it goes back and forth how we feel about trust. Most people, I think, aren't very rational about what should be private and what shouldn't be private and don't really know, don't know how what their 
policy and approach should be. So I think it's difficult. And I think in the area of healthcare, you have almost a bigger and sort of more sacred trust because yeah. um, we we tell our, you know, there's a lot of people who joke, you know, the, the only person who knows, you know, how much I really drink or, you know, <laughs> what I really do is my doctor, right? Yeah. And, and so in some ways, you need to know more about your patient or your customer in order to serve them well. But I think that increases the, the obligation you have. And it also, I think, increases the risk of what would happen if you, I don't even want to say betrayed their trust, but even if you let them down a little bit in an area that required trust and around their privacy, there's big risk there. Yeah. And you know, the concept of forever transaction or putting the customer really simplifies that decision. Because if you're thinking that way, it's really easy to make that business decision of, you know, is there an opportunity to do things that may be short-term profitable, but long-term trust? Uh, destroys trust and the forever transaction it's very easy to make that decision <laughs> which is you know what we love about the concepts that you cover in your books i was going to say something that i found sort of interesting is that many of the best companies that i've worked with or the i don't want to say the best but the ones that have been really able to embrace this most fully a lot of them and this surprised me are, are closely held family-owned businesses because they don't have to worry about short-term results. They don't have to kind of fall prey to quarterly capitalism, yeah. right? They can say, we're trying to build something so that, that there's something for the next generation to inherit. But it really is a very, like you said, that it's a very different mindset to say, we're focused on the long-term well-being of our customers and we trust that everything else will fall into place and we're willing to be patient about the financial payoff to that value that we're creating and building. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems, you know, technology is really helping in that way, too. It's make, making it very transparent. So people will know whether you're taking advantage of them. And that creates almost a policing impact for even big companies. So it's all moving in the positive Definitely. direction when you think about the long term and not the short term. Or this concept of capitalism gone wrong that we think a lot about. Maybe switching a little bit the gears and talking about... Um, so there's the customer, obviously, and there's the business, but then there's this concept of community. Where have you seen businesses really create a community to enhance the value for the customers and put the customers uh, you know, at the center? And obviously, the community could be customers, but also could be a lot more broad than just customers. Yeah, it's such a, I think of it as such a valuable lever for any business, any relationship-oriented business to say, what is the role of the community and how can we layer in more value by having brought this group of people together? And so, you know, some of that is just the collective data, right? Being able to benchmark people, having some kind of a networked effect that creates more value when each new person joins. That's one way that I've seen it work. And then there's also what I think of as sort of true community. That is that we actually know each other one-on-one uh, -on -one or in small groups. And I think both of those kind of the network component and the community component, the relationship component, both of those create value. And in many cases, those are, you know, from the business side, those are barriers to entry for new entrants because I might come to you because I need an app and there's five apps that do the same thing. But then I get to know the other people that are using that app who have similar goals, similar problems to me. And maybe I even get to know other people in the larger ecosystem. So in your case, that might be experts and elite athletes and people that I can learn from. And then it becomes, yeah, I came for something that is, you know, maybe I could have gotten it elsewhere, but I'm staying for the people. I'm staying for the community. So I've seen both of those things be really valuable. And I've seen companies, you know, when you first come in, you're coming for maybe a small feature, but very quickly the organization's moving to how do we layer in community? How do we layer in benchmarking? How do we layer in some kind of network benefit from having brought all these people together that makes us different and special and more valuable to our members? When is the right time for, a, especially an early company, to really focus on community, going from the single player mode to this multiplayer mode? Have you seen examples where companies have done a, a gradual transition or started from the beginning to put the groundwork for creating communities? Can you talk a little bit about that? So when is the right time to really focus on community or should uh, startups or companies think about it from the get-go? Yeah. So I can give you three old school examples. You have LinkedIn, 
right? They had a forever promise around helping professionals thrive in their careers, right? From the very beginning. And they had vision of, you know, everybody's going to gather there and it's going to be how you keep up with your professional community. And it's going to be how you stay in touch with news and how you learn and how you hire and all these different things. But at the beginning, it was really just a pretty easy place to put your resume. And that by itself was valuable. So I could put my resume up on LinkedIn if I was looking for a job. And when people asked me for a copy of my resume, I could send them there or they could just look it up without even calling me and check me out without having to engage in a job discussion. They had the vision, though, of what kind of community they were trying to build and how they were going to layer in that value over time. The other thing that they did is they focused on different groups, you know, kind of one at a time. So salespeople, recruiters, and then job seekers, and then the rest of us. So having that focus as they layered in additional benefits, the benefits were very focused. And then it was only much later that they started to actually have benefits that an average working person who wasn't looking for a new job could find valuable. Another approach, so their approach was just to summarize, have a great feature that doesn't require other participants, like you said, one player, multiplayer, um, and then layer in the additional value over time. Facebook, which said, you know, our whole value is community, is interaction, is the real relationships. You know, originally it was the real relationships that you have in real life, but in this digital format, you know, for them, it was really important to take one small group at a time, right? So one school, then the next school, then the next school, and a long time before they let in alumni and then, you know, general population. So that's the second thing is to take small groups that exist in in real life or that have a very, very tight, real connection already, and then layer in other benefits over time. And then the last thing is, you know, I mentioned Netflix, they've experimented a lot with community And for the most part, community hasn't ended up being a really important part of their business model. Now, the data behind all of us and recognizing that even though there's some person in Topeka, Kansas, who likes the exact same content that I do, it's probably not a good friend of mine. Like I have a greater likelihood of having the same movie tastes as some random person in another part of the country, much higher likelihood than I have the same taste as, you know, honestly, my husband who lives in the same house as me or my neighbor or somebody that I choose for my movie community. And so in that case, community wasn't a really big part of of their strategy, even though at the beginning, I think there was some consideration for it. So I think it's also important to be open about how much is this helping us in achieving the goals that we have. I used to think that any membership organization, you had to be friends with the people that also were subscribers or also members. But I don't know the people that have AAA, you know, <laughs> I don't know, you know, the people that have Netflix, you know, there's lots of things where just because yeah. you and I are both members of something that I want to talk to you about it. And if you think about the guiding principle, then when is community really helpful to a business? Are there things that could be a good guide for people when they're thinking about communities, such as network effects or yeah, how, when, what would they be? Yeah. So I think and this kind of gets to freemium, you know, which is which is a question too, the, ro- the role of free. A lot of times community or the network effect, having a lot of people that have a shared goal or a shared problem that they're trying to solve, having them together creates value for the people who are willing to pay. Yeah. So that's kind of one reason to think about community. If you said having all these people together, we can do more for our customers if we had access or a connection or relationship with those people, whether or not they're going to pay. So that's one reason. A second thing is if you have a topic that people want to talk about and they don't have ready access to other people, they can talk to about it. So that's why you see things like very special kind of niche areas where community pops up because, you know, who else am I going to talk to about my macrame habit or my really rare health condition? It's nice to have somebody else do the work of bringing those people together. Also, yeah. when facilitation is important, sometimes that creates value. Uh, if, it's, if it's something sensitive or, or touching, you say, I want to be with people, but I want it, like, for example, a CEO group. I want to make sure that we have shared values. I want to make sure that we don't uh, devolve the conversation into things that either aren't helpful to me or waste my time or create bad feelings. And I want to keep this stuff confidential. So that's another case is when, when the information is sensitive or high stakes or hard to get. I think those are all reasons when when community really comes into play. That makes sense. And then, you know, tying to the origin, the first concept I think we talked about, self-esteem and self-sense of belonging. How does community help with that? Huh, I never thought about that. That's a good question. How does community tie into creating self-esteem? 
Well, if you think about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The the middle one is belonging and the one right above that is esteem, right? Yeah. And it's like the first one is I want you to recognize me and say, "Hey Robbie, welcome back." You know, yeah. do you want the usual? <laughs> How are your kids? None of that has anything to do with my status. It just means that you recognize me and you see me for who I am and I'm not a stranger. Yeah. And that's really valuable. But taking that one step further, recognizing me for my contributions and achievements, which is how I think about esteem, that's like one level higher of belonging, right? If you say, there's Robbie, I know her, great. If you say, there's Robbie, she's so helpful. She knows yeah. so much, right? You know, a big contributor, big achiever, that both creates more value for me. It creates a deeper sense of belonging. I mean, there's so much data that shows that, you know, if you want to get somebody to give money to your nonprofit, the first thing that you do is ask them for advice or help. And then later you ask them for money and that really works because somehow, I forget there's some name for it, but you get more committed when you feel recognized. You you want to give more. Makes sense. And I wonder also because it's coming from a, you know, neutral third party, other community members, it's probably a lot more valuable than if it's coming from the business because it feels a lot more genuine and it's more than one entity that has that point of view. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. You know, I, I have this concept of, of super users, which for me, what that means is people who go beyond just being good members. That is, you know, they pay you regularly, they get value for what they're paying for. They recognize that value. That's a, that's a good customer. That's a good member, really valuable. But people who go beyond that and contribute their own time and money to the well-being of the group. And yeah. back to your question about, you know, creating community, that's the amazing flywheel for growth and for value. Those people that recruit other people in, not because you're giving them a, you know, a free cup of coffee or a $5 discount every time they bring somebody, but because it's meaningful to them to bring other people in, to onboard them. So to say, hey, welcome to the group. This is how we do it here, which I actually saw a lot you know, on the levels Facebook page, right? Where people say, you know, oh, you're having this problem. It's probably this. Oh, you're having, you want to achieve that. Here's what I do. And then the third piece is giving feedback back to the organization, which I know you also are doing in in a very proactive way. People sometimes joke, like, I don't really want that kind of help from my customers. You know, don't tell me what I'm doing wrong. It's, you know, it's so annoying, but that is a gift, right? And organizations where your most loving and engaged members are actually taking the time to give you thoughtful feedback to make the products and services better. That's incredibly, incredibly valuable. Yeah, we have another, you know, internal uh, value, which is we call feedback a gift. So both when we're working with each other and obviously from our customers, so we always view that as a gift. So it's, uh, it's it really that. resonates. Um, you know, another angle of thinking about the delivering value for our members um, that we think about is this idea of ancillary services, or if you take it even a broader marketplace, what are your thoughts around, you know, when is it the right time and what's the form in which either ancillary services, which is a much more limited version of the marketplace or marketplace could really help deliver value for members? Yeah. What always guides me is that that forever promise. So if you're saying our promise is health, I think it's not realistic that any one organization can provide everything that a person needs to be healthy. And so you say, well, how are we going to increase? This is what I always ask myself. How do we increase the likelihood of each member achieving the promise that we promised them, achieving the goal that we promised them? So if we say, we're going to help you lose weight, right? One way of doing that is to give them, you know, verbal guidance. Here's how people lose weight. You know, write down what you eat and eat less and make better choices. Here's a list of the better choices. Here's a a store where you can buy the ingredients. Here's a a, a restaurant where you can get that food. Here's a person who lives in your house who watches what you eat and tells you to stop when you're about to pick something up and exercises with you. Each one of those things increases the likelihood of you achieving your goals. And in terms of which of those things you should do, you said as, as ancillary benefits, meaning I think that we as an organization provide ourselves versus where do we, where do we partner or even more broadly, when do we just open up the doors and say, if you think you can help with this challenge of helping people right. get fit or, or lose weight or stay healthy, come join us. I think the timing on that and which one, that, that is your business strategy, right? And every organization sort of has a different approach. Some you know, really want to have a walled garden. Others really want to bring everybody in. Some of them have a hybrid where they say, you know, this is a curated marketplace and anything that you have access to is something that we as an organization back up, 
right? We support it. If you have a bad experience, you call us, you don't have to call them. Um, I think that those are really important strategic questions. And I think that there's some opportunity and there's some risk. The opportunity, of course, is that you're giving that member more ways to achieve their goal faster. The, the downside is there beca- there's increasing complexity and responsibility on the part of the member to figure out what's the best way for me to achieve my goal, both in terms of which features, which products, which services, and also how much should it cost me. And the more I have to think about it, the less I'm able to relax into the relationship with you and say, I just trust them. They're going to tell me what I need to do. And so there's always this trade-off. And I actually think that it's often different kinds of people who say, just let me add it, you know, send me to the marketplace and I can figure this stuff out. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a researcher, I'm a shopper. And then there's other people that are like, here I am, I'm in your hands. Help me figure this out. Tell me what to do and I will do it. And so I think you have to decide which way you're going, right? I mean, sometimes I, my kids are kind of, have just gone to college and I've gone through a lot of, you know, SAT stuff. And there was this guy in our town who does SAT prep and he has a book and it's like 700 pages and it talks you through every single question type that you would ever see in the ACT or the SAT tests and how people make mistakes and different strategies to use. I mean, it's, it's like an encyclopedia of how to take this test. Yeah. And that book, I think, is 50 bucks. And if you want this guy to have your kid take a practice test, figure out where their weaknesses are and give them the four pages that they need, yeah. that's like thousands of dollars, right? <laughs> so in other words, people pay more money for less information that takes less time. Yeah. Right. Because they're like, I want the outcome. I want to do well on the test, not I want all the information. And so when you're thinking about your business model, it might feel like giving somebody access to a marketplace of everything they could possibly want is great. But a lot of people would say, you know what, I'd actually pay you more if you just told me, hey, Robbie, you know, honestly, this is what you need. You need this, this and this. And this one seems expensive, but it's worth it. Yeah, it's actually really good. A really good framework. Uh, you know, the way we think about it is, you know, what is your product offering people? And obviously, saving people time, money, removing paradoxes of choice is a value creation method that you can key on versus uh, providing, you know, everything to people and then they're just lost in paradox of choice. And also, quality sometimes is not clear. It almost reminds me the early days of a Macintosh versus a you know pc totally whereas you could put anything you wanted on your pc macintosh it is what it is (laughs) but it's a lot easier right and for a lot of people you know i think about i think it's such a good example you know apple i talk about this membership economy right and i talk about forever transaction and a lot of times people refer to me as a subscription person but for me subscription is just a pricing decision it's a tactic and what's really juicy and interesting and important is this membership mindset, this focus on the long-term, you know, this forever promise that you're making. And Apple, separating out for a minute the, all the stuff that they've done with apps and software and, and, yeah. and content, but just the hardware, they didn't, they sold that stuff outright. There was no subscription pricing for your computer or for your phone, but people would come into the store and say, hey, I'm an Apple person. What kind of phone should I get? Or I'm an Apple person. What kind of computer should I get? And they say, oh, you know, you want this one. And they say, I'm an Apple person what kind of printer should I get? And they would say, well, we don't sell printers. And the person would say, okay, well, what printer should I buy then? Can you tell me which printer I should buy? And that is membership because people said, I'm an Apple person. Tell me what to do. The outcome that I want is I want all my stuff to work together. I want my hardware footprint to just work. And I don't know what that means, but I know you do. And and that's what I want. And I'm paying a ridiculous premium to make sure that everything works together. Yeah, definitely. For a long time, Apple, you could fit all of Apple's products onto a, you know, regular size table. And <laughs> that paradox of choice was a big component um, of that. And then obviously with the App Store, they found a way to allow both this idea of a controlled or a closed environment, but also open. And it's definitely a business model innovation where you combine this idea of creating a marketplace where it doesn't create this free-for-all, very difficult uh, marketplace to navigate. At the same time, as you said, you know, this forever promise of allowing people to have different ways to achieve their goals. Yeah. And one thing that I, when you, when you said that, that it made me think about is that, you know, a company like Apple that went from being 
this kind of walled garden, this small set of products that worked beautifully together where they would say, you know, we don't have a solution for that. So if you want that, you have to go somewhere else to being this, you know, marketplace. And also, you know, of course, they, you know, big part of their business now is subscription-based, recurring revenue oriented. It's a different culture within the company, requires a different mindset, different metrics, different way of even designing product. Because when you're designing for the long-term you're not just thinking about what are the acquisition benefits, you know, those benefits that you put in your headlines that get somebody to sign up, but what are the features that are going to get somebody to make it into a habit and maybe expand the relationship over time? So it really, like one of the things that I think organizations don't spend enough time thinking about is if you want to have, you know, be optimized for long-term relationships, that actually has an impact on the way you build products, on the way you think about marketing, because you actually have to market after you've, you know, the product has to be able to market itself and continue to deepen the relationship with the customer without the enthusiasm that you have when you walk into the store or go online to buy something that that you're excited to get. So really thinking about that, what is the culture for forever inside an organization versus the culture of the transaction hitting the quarterly number, which is totally different. Yeah, you know, actually, you asked at the beginning of the call, like, what did the internal team think of the book and feedback? One of the things that we love is this idea of farming versus big game hunting. It is true. When you're a membership and people and you create these, and I think also you talk in your books, and I want to talk through this uh, at the end of maybe this conversation of how do you actually create membership that is beneficial because there's now so many membership businesses. One of the concepts was this idea of if you let people cancel easily, then how do you create a membership business that people want to be in, which is similar to farming versus big game hunting because you need to keep people there and solve problems for them continuously versus just get them in the door and hope for the best. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard. I mean, there's a lot of companies and there's a lot of jokes, I mean, about, you know, trying to cancel your gym membership or, you know, trying to get out of some, you know, it it was easy to get in and it's, you know, impossible to get out. The FTC right now is creating some new legislation, some new rules, regulation around if you can sign up online, you have to be allowed to cancel online. You can't require somebody to call if you didn't require them to call to join and some other principles, because so many of these companies are bad actors, right? Yeah. They they say, we're I mean, they really say like, we're going to lock them in. We're going to make it hard for them to get out. And it does create more revenue in, back to this, you know, quarterly capitalism. It does create more revenue in, in the short term, right? If you make it really hard for me to cancel, I say, screw it. I'll wait another month, you know, and maybe two or three months go by before I really focus in on it again and say, today's the day I'm going to cancel. But in the long term, that means I'm probably never going to come back. And I'm going to tell yeah. all my friends about my bad experience. Yeah. And so in the long term, it, it does not pay off. The other thing is, if people are canceling, it's really important to understand the reasons for the churn, right? And are they acceptable or unacceptable reasons? So if I you know, join a gym and then I cancel because I move cross country, that makes sense. Like People who move away from a gym should not be members of the gym if you're not going to be able to take advantage. If I cancel my gym membership because... You know, I always have to wait in line for every single machine and I can never get into the classes and the shower is moldy. That's a yeah. product problem, right? If I say, you know what, I've taken every class that you have and I'm sick of them and there's nothing else for me to learn here. You know, I can do that, those exercises at home for free, the same thing that I'm doing, you know, with you for money. Then yeah. you say, do we offer more or do we gracefully let people go? And maybe even say, this is a membership that's great for six months. It's not really forever. And I think a lot of organizations aren't honest. So if I have a program that teaches you, let's say, you know, how to start a business and I want you to stay in it forever, but the first six months is when the great value happens. And then after that, all you really want, honestly, is the community of the other eight people that went through the program with you. I need to be honest about what's in the best interest for the customer. The best interest for the customer, they don't really need access to the beginner courses anymore. They do really need access to the friends that they made. So can I create a lighter you know, maintenance program for them or an ongoing program. But I think when people are leaving, and a lot of times people kind of gain the system, they join for three months, they cancel for a little bit, they come back later, getting really curious about why that's happening and saying, is that a product problem? Or is that in fact the best way for this person to have the experience? And how can I structure the product in a way that makes more sense for that customer so they don't have to, you know, game the system? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think even Sam had a tweet about difficulty of canceling memberships uh, and having to call customer support and be online and be on the phone for for a, for a period of time. And it's, you know, frustrating. And with Twitter and all these, uh, you know, social media, it's very fast. 
that uh, yeah. the, the information and news travels very fast. So it's not in the best interest of businesses to make that create these uh, dark patterns. Yeah, I don't think so. What's your, you know, since we got into this topic, what are, you know, obviously one of the uh, criticism of membership economy is that now you've got a million of them, right? And uh, how do you, how do customers navigate uh, the membership economy? And then, you know, what are the good practices to actually be contributing uh, versus detracting? I think one of the examples we just talked about was allowing people to cancel quickly and easily. But what are some of the other things that businesses can do to create a positive experience. There's definitely a big case of subscription fatigue out there where people are like, you know, five years ago or eight years ago, when I told people that I worked in, in, you know, with subscriptions, they'd say, I don't really understand what that is for a job. And then they probably move away and go talk to someone else. And now they come closer and they tell me their horror stories, right? Yeah. Oh, you work with subscriptions. Subscriptions are terrible. I hate them. I have so many. I can't remember, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's definitely changed. People are exhausted. And I think there's a couple of things you can do if you're a new entrant into this world, this very, very noisy world. The first thing is to recognize the world that you're coming into. So the downside is people say, oh, another subscription, you're forcing me to subscribe. I just want to own it outright, or I just want to pay as I go. Recognizing that and also recognizing that people actually know how to use subscriptions. So back to the the story with Netflix, not being able to go to certain countries because the countries weren't ready. Everybody knows how to subscribe, right? You know, my parents subscribe to all kinds of things. They're comfortable with giving up their credit card or having Apple Pay or whatever whatever the case may be. That's good news. But the first thing is to recognize the environment. You want to not overbuild. I think there's a lot of issues around product market fit with subscriptions, either with people saying, all I need is I need to use this product once and they're requiring me to subscribe for a year. Or I just want to watch this soccer match, but they're requiring me to join for the whole season. So really thinking about whether you're going to force people to buy more than they need or whether you're going to really optimize the membership to justify it. Like not everything needs to be a subscription. We don't need everything on an ongoing basis. Some things have a, have a finite duration or are episodic in nature and we, we don't need them unless certain things are in play. I think one of the other issues, that's product market fit. Second issue is what I think of as subscription guilt, which is there's too much. It's a good product, but it's too much and I don't use it and I feel bad about myself. So I'm going to cancel. And that's like, yeah. the New Yorker problem, right? Mm-hmm. Magazines are piling up. It's not that they're too expensive. I think it's a fair price. And it's yeah. not that the content isn't good. It's just, I, I never get through them all. And then another one comes and that makes me feel bad about myself. So I'll cancel for a while and try to get through these and maybe I'll subscribe again next year. Same thing right. with a lot of the um, meal kit companies, right? You know, nothing feels worse than you have a meal that's about to go bad in your fridge and your friends invite you out and you're like, I'm sitting home alone eating my blue apron meal because, you know, because <laughs> I <laughs> promised my partner that I wasn't going to throw it away and waste it. And, yeah. you know, so making sure that you right size things and also that you set expectations accordingly. So for example, saying I have a client that has a produce box that comes every week and it's great. It's, you know, it's great for the farmers. It's great for your health, but people throw away some of the food and they feel horrible about themselves. And so one of the things that we've done is we've set expectations through our communications with them that it's okay to sometimes throw out a rotten piece of fruit or, you know, some rotten, you know, le- that the, you know, the leaves, leafy greens get old faster when they're organic and it's okay to yeah. throw it away because you're supporting the farmers. The likelihood that you eat it is much higher if it's within arm's reach. Setting expectations. It's okay to read two articles in the New Yorker. You don't have to read them all. I think that's also really helpful. And then the last one is make it easy for them to leave so that when they come back, they want to come back. Um, yeah. Make it easy to leave, make it easy to come back and really understand why they're leaving and try to fix those. Yeah, or even put your membership on pause, right? You don't have to. That's very popular thing. now. Yeah. Especially for solutions where you know that there's a problem with subscription overwhelm or subscription guilt where the Dollar Shave Club, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes you know, people would have the problem saying, well, now there's too many razors or I have too much shampoo from, you know, one of the one of the hair products. Being able to pause it so you can catch up, they, they know that's an issue. So when you know it's an issue, you want to come up with a remedy that makes sense for the person who says, you know, I love this company. I love what they're doing, but it's too much for me. Yeah. What do you do for them? How do yeah. you, how do you right size it? Makes sense. You, you make me feel good about my um, outside magazine membership now, because I, I love that company <laughs> and everything they're about, but I definitely have probably 10 editions that I need to catch up on. But uh, they're such a great company. Yeah. Just, I yeah, yeah. And they're doing... 
they're doing they're doing really interesting things with their bundling with all the different companies that they've acquired with the yeah. goal of helping people enjoy their time outside and moving beyond just content to include, you know, apps and events, food and other things that contribute to your enjoyment of an active life outside. So, um, you know, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure they'd be okay if you're only reading one article, <laughs> one article per issue. <laughs> yeah, actually, <laughs> as long you know, as you're I, getting outside. I learned about all their other services through your podcast. Um, like, wow, they have all those oh. things I've never even <laughs> knew. So, you taken it I need to go. Yeah, I need to go check them out again. But I love the brand. Maybe changing gears a little bit um, into, you know, one of the one of the things that maybe early startups uh, struggle with is this idea that they've created a product and it's successful for a, their early customers or a niche group of people, and now they have to think about how do they actually make their products mass market. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts around how do you manage both creating a product for people that were your best customers, early customers? And also, and not alienating them, and also transitioning to a more mass market where maybe the needs are different. I'll give you an example. For example, you know, maybe some of the early in health, early adopters are over-optimizers. They love graphs. They love charts. They do all the research themselves. And maybe when you go to mainstream, people actually want more easy-to-digest information and advice. So can you talk us through how people have made that transition successfully? Yeah, I mean, I think of it as expanding over time. So when I work with organizations, we'll often start with like a very small group. And often it is that kind of leading or bleeding edge customers that are willing to either to put up with a lot of clunkiness because they value what's at the core and you know a lighter, more general audience member wouldn't be as patient or because they truly are a different group. They have different, like you said, they have different needs. They They love the data and they're quite experts. One of the things that I encourage companies to do is to think hard about who that early group is and why you picked them. So did you pick them because they're the ones that can pressure test the product and make sure it works? Or you picked them because they're the influencers that'll tell other people? Or you you picked them because they're going to help you make the most sophisticated product? But to know why, and then to say, what is the next group that we're going to add? What do they need that's different? Is it less? Is it lighter? Is it easier? Is it more elegant? Is it cheaper? Is it does more really to understand what's the difference between those people and what additional benefits do you need to, or features do you need to layer in, in order to make it work? One of the challenges that often happens when you start with what I think of sort of the, the, the leading edge, bleeding edge members, the ones who are always pushing the envelope and want the new, new thing yeah. is those people are very hard to retain because almost by nature, they want something that nobody else has heard of. So even yeah. if you take your product and make it better, but now people have heard of it because it's so darn good, those yeah. people are going to say, I mean, they're not going to say this out loud because it sounds stupid, but they're going to say, I'd rather have a product <laughs> that's not that good that nobody else has seen yet and be part of that exciting newness yeah. than be on the bandwagon, right? Like the people who had Peloton in the early days, a lot of those people have moved on, right? To whatever the next new thing is. And one of the things, you know, when I was working on my first book, one of the people I interviewed was the founder of Pandora. And he said, you know, music is something where there's definitely an in crowd, you know, the people that know the latest, coolest music, but there's also a lot of people who love 80s tunes and love Frank Sinatra and music that's not cool. And they said, you know, we knew that since we were, trying to build habits and make people stay, that maybe it wasn't important for us to get those leading edge music fans as much as it was to have a product that everybody felt welcome in. And so they did, for example, town halls where they went to the flyover states in the Midwest and talked to groups of people that weren't necessarily known for being music experts, music aficionados, and making them, you know, saying, what we want is for you to enjoy listening to music. We yeah. want you to listen to the kind of music. We have no judgment. You know, if you want to listen to tunes from the 80s or if you want to listen to the latest, you know, indie bands, no judgment here. We want you to enjoy because they knew that that cool group was going to leave as quickly as they came. And I thought that was really, really wise and interesting to say we're, we know who we want and we want the people, you know, our best customer is someone who stays with us for a long time. And that profile is this. So a little bit of a rambling way of getting back to the original question, which is, Think about who is going to be the customer for the long term. And you might say that your original group of members 
they are going to stay for the long term and they are your ideal member and you need to find more of them. Or you might say, we know we're going to lose some of these people as they move on, but they've been tremendously valuable for us. And we're always going to make sure that we can serve them well. But we're going increasingly, you know, we're going to optimize toward a person who's just trying to be healthy as opposed to a person who's trying to optimize their performance. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, And I think a difficulty becomes when by continuing to support something that's legacy, you accrue enough debt that the experience eventually degrades for everyone. And so really thinking about the bigger picture of we're going to provide the best experience for our customers. And that may mean that we have to sunset some of the old features is um, seems to be the unintuitive decision. But uh, my recent book, The Forever Transaction, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, when we've talked today a lot about the launch phase of getting started and finding product market fit and making something happen. And then the scaling phase, which is, you know, what we've really talked about, you know, how do you how do you grow that? How do you operationalize something? Different kinds of skills, different kind of focus. The last phase is how do you stay relevant over time? And this is where that sunsetting that you brought up, Maz, that's become so important because you start to just have all these, you know, barnacles on your on your product, like all this old stuff that maybe doesn't work as well, but there's three people who like it. Like I, I worked with an association that's been around for a hundred years, a professional association, and they actually had a question of, we can't continue faxing our stuff out and start an online newsletter. So which one should we do? Because many of our most loyal and engaged members really love the fax and nobody of our members loves the newsletter because they didn't have one. And this was a serious conversation. And they thought that they were being very strategic because, you know, everybody says, focus on your best customers. And they were like, these are our best members. They've been with us for 45 years. They're about to retire. And so I think one of the big challenges for membership organizations is to look as much at your acquisition metrics as your retention metrics and to balance those two. Most companies over-index on one or the other. 